this week on Hope for the Broken. Our human hearts are bent towards sin. Yet, here's what I want you to see. God is at work. Even if you were to look across our culture and say, well, man, gosh, this sure has gotten bad. Listen, I want you to know something. It's never bad enough for God not to do work. God is working and he's raising up a people that he's calling into himself. And part of that is in giving them a new identity, a new walk in Christ. Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community, redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we begin a new sermon series called Made New. In this 10-part sermon series, we explore the book of Ephesians and witness how Jesus has the power to make different aspects of our lives new. Here's our pastor, Chris Wigley, with part one titled, A New Identity. Listen, today we're beginning a new teaching series uh, entitled Made New. And what we're going to do is over the course of the summer, 10 weeks out of the summer, we are going to go on a journey as we study through the New Testament book of Ephesians, the New Testament book of Ephesians. And I think one of the things that we're going to see as a major theme throughout the course of this book is this concept of being made new, uh, having new life in Christ. And there's a profound impact that being made new has on the way in which we live our lives each and every day. Uh, It it impacts our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do over the next 10 weeks is take a look at a couple of different uh, issues. We're going to look at a new identity, a new focus, a new life. We're part of a new body of Christ. There is a new plan to reach the world, Paul tells us. We are called to a new level of prayer. We have a dynamic unity together. Relationships are made new. We have a new walk and we fight a new kind of battle. And so that's going to be what we cover over the course of this summer here together. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me now to the New Testament book of Ephesians. Now, if you are new to Bible study, and by the way, it's okay if you are because everybody's new to Bible study at some point, right? Ephesians is in the New Testament. And you'll have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you have Acts and Romans, and then you have First and Second Corinthians, and then you come to Galatians, and then the very next book is Ephesians. So you turn in your copy of God's Word. If you need a Bible, there should be one in the seat rack in front of you somewhere. That If you don't have a Bible, that is your Bible to keep. And so we're going to read through Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 here today. Now, before we jump in, I want to talk through some background information about this letter. The book of Ephesians is actually a letter um, from Paul, from the Apostle Paul, to the church in Ephesus. And what we're going to see is uh, just as this letter was applicable to the first century believers, boy, is it sure applicable to us today. And you know, that sure is the case with anything related to Scripture. 
You know, a lot of times critics will say, well, the Bible's just outdated, it's irrelevant. Uh, But it seems to prove itself time and time again, generation after generation, that it is indeed always relevant. And so what we're going to see is that's the case here with this book. We learn in the opening verse that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, and most scholars believe that he penned it somewhere between uh, 60 and 62 AD, so somewhere around the neighborhood of 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. And when Paul wrote this at that time period, he was actually imprisoned in Rome. And so there he is in a jail cell in Rome, penning what is perhaps one of the most influential books in the pages of the New Testament. In fact, one commentator I read said, pound for pound, the book of Ephesians may well be the most influential document ever written. That's, that's a pretty profound statement, right? That, that in just six chapters, you have this rich doctrine and you have this rich uh, teaching on what Christianity looks like and how we are to operate. In fact, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is doctrinal in nature. It contains a lot of theology, formative theology, and even soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. And then the final three chapters moves more into a practical application of it. So so as to say that we get the foundation of the doctrine and then we build upon that foundation behaviors that we as believers in Jesus Christ now operate in, in this new life that is in him. So that's the way the book is set up. Now, one thing that was also interesting in my study this week is to come to find out that the, the, this letter to the Ephesians, it was first dele- delivered to the church in Ephesus, but it was always intended to be circulated to all the churches in, in, in Asia, and that it was. And so it was circulated in such a way and preserved for us even today that this is a very important letter, not only for that region in that time period, but for the church, for you and I today. Now, there's something that you need to know about Ephesus. And, and what you and I need to know about first century Ephesus is that it looked a lot like 21st century United States, right? It's eerie, the similarities between the two, okay? I want to describe to you first century Ephesus. It was known as a diverse melting pot. It was given the name the Supreme Metropolis of Asia. There were many different religions and shrines and temples to false gods everywhere. And the popular religious view of the area of Ephesus was that the spiritual world was very involved in what was happening in your life. In other words, they subscribed to karma, which would later be introduced. We, we recognize that here today. You hear that term thrown out all the time. Ephesus was also the economic leader in the region. It sat right upon the Mediterranean Sea, and its harbors was a place for ships to come in and to make trade. Uh, every major roadway went through Ephesus. And so this was, this was a, a roads that went right through the city. It was the primary banking center of Asia. If you had business to do, you went to Ephesus to do it. Now, Ephesus was also very morally corrupt. I mean, morally corrupt. There was the celebration of what was perverse. There was rampant prostitution and idol worship was commonplace. If we were to say that there is a city that is very similar to first century Ephesus in our day and time, what city would you think? Las Vegas, 
Sin city, right? This is exactly Ephesus. You know, it's amazing to me to, to think back and say, you know, over the course of 2,000 years, a lot has changed. But there again, a lot has remained the same. And that's because the human heart has the same condition. Right? Our human hearts are bent towards sin. Left to following our hearts, we will always go down the path of sin and destruction. And that's exactly what was happening in Ephesus. It's what we see happening in many uh, parts of our country today and even across the globe. And so this is a very common uh, experience for us today. Yet, here's what I want you to see. Even in Sin City, God was at work. God was at work in Ephesus in such a way that he was raising up a people, that he was calling to himself. He was rescuing them from sin, death, and the grave. And he was giving them a great mission and giving them a platform that would advance the gospel, I would say, not like the world has seen since. And so here's the encouragement that we learn from today. Even in that kind of environment, the gospel always flourishes. God is at work. And even if you were to look across our culture and say, well, man, gosh, this sure has gotten bad. Listen, I want you to know something. It's never bad enough for God not to do work. God is working and he's raising up a people that he's calling into himself. And part of that is in giving them a new identity, a new walk in Christ, a new life in Christ. And that is the title of our message here today, a new identity. Just like God gave the Ephesians a new identity, for those of us that are in Christ, we too have been given a new identity. And so I want to look at this passage, Ephesians chapter 1, the first 14 verses, by looking at who we were, who we are, and who we will be. That will serve as our outline here this morning. But you know, identity is such a huge thing in our culture, isn't it? In fact, one article I read this week from Forbes magazine, and many other sources, by the way, have said and deemed that America is currently experiencing an identity crisis. It named a, ra a racial identity, a cultural identity, a sexual identity, a gender identity, being the major dis discussions of this identity crisis in our world today. Now, I looked up the meaning identity crisis. And according to WordNet, the definition of identity crisis is distress and disorientation, especially in adolescence, resulting from conflicting pressures and uncertainty about oneself and one's role in society. Now certainly, that could be said of first century Ephesus, and I would say that that could be echoed of our culture today. But here's what... In the midst of all of that confusion that I believe the New Testament is trying to say this, listen, there is a clarity. There is clarity in who we are in Christ. And it's vitally important for us to know and understand. Because when we get that right, everything else falls in line. And so we're going to talk today about a new identity. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have a new identity. So let's first look at that by looking at who we were. When I say who we were, I'm talking about who we were prior to placing our faith and trust in Jesus as Lord. 
Now, I know that there may be some of us here today that you have never come to a point where you've professed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're still investigating faith claims and you're still wanting to know who this Jesus guy is and, and you're wanting to determine, is this something that I want to follow? And, and we're so glad that you're here, if that's you. But here's what I want you to know. What I'm about to describe, what the scriptures are about to describe for us and reveal to us is who we were as believers in Jesus Christ before coming to Christ. And if you have yet to profess faith in Christ, then this is who you are right now, right? But know this, that God wants to do a work in your life so as to give you a new identity in Christ. And later on in the service, we're going to give you an opportunity to come to faith in Jesus, if that's you. And so this is who we were prior to life in Christ. Let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints. I want you to underline that, the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in, circle that, in Christ Jesus. Two key words here and understanding identity in this passage. Saints and in. Question, who are the saints? How do you become a saint? If Paul is writing to the saints, who are these saints? You know, I think we have a tendency to think the saints were these people a long time ago who were really, really religious people who wrote uh, really, really great things and did really, really great things. Like we think of, you know, St. Teresa or St. Thomas Aquinas. And we think of all these people of, of ancient, long ago. They're the saints, right? But that is not the biblical use of the word saint, so then how does the Bible use the word saint? Well, Paul, in this letter to the Ephesians, he calls the Ephesians believers saints nine times. Also throughout the, the course of all of his letters that have now been preserved for us in the New Testament, which he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, by the way, Paul uses the word saints often. And when he does, he always refers to the believers in that region. So essentially, what Paul is saying is, as a saint, is anyone who has come to faith in Jesus as Lord. You know what that means? It means that if you are in Christ, you are now a saint. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're a saint. Now, I know some of you, that's harder than others because of who you're having to say that to, right? I get that. But, but they are, they're saints, right? I just said turn and say saints, not start a conversation, right? So come on, let's... All right, but here's the deal that I want you to see. Before Christ, we are far from being called a saint. Before his redeeming work in our life, we were anything but a saint. And understanding our new identity is found in realizing who we were in our old identity. So who were we in our old identity? Who were we before Jesus rescued us? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about that. I want to show you some, some passages. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. John 3, 18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. 
Leviticus 5.17 says, If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. Romans 5.6 says that for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, who we were before Jesus is we were dead, enslaved to sin, condemned, guilty, ungodly, unrighteous, and sinful people. That's who we were. Wow, Pastor Chris, I came to church to be encouraged and... uh, I'm really struggling right now to find that encouragement. Well, remember, in knowing who you are now, you need to understand who you were then. And you need to also understand that even though that described who we were, Jesus entered into that mess to redeem us. He saved you. He rescued you from that identity. And he gave us a new identity. So that's point number two who we are. We've looked at who we were. Now let's discover who we are. What Paul does in verses 3 through 14 is he starts getting fired up about his new identity. He starts talking about who we are in Christ and he gets so fired up that he writes one long run-on sentence. In the original language, verse 3 through 14 is one sentence. 246 words in the English language. One sentence. Why is he writing it in one sentence? Well, because he's fired up. He can't stop writing. He's just writing, writing, writing. And his grammar teacher, I'm sure, would have slapped him on the wrist. But he's fired up about it. And we should be fired up about it too. So what does he say? I'm going to read it like I imagined he wrote it. And I want you to pick up on a common occurrence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, to bless God means to praise Him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him and in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved and in Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will and according to the purpose which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth and actually keeps going we're going to get to that in a moment we're going to start stop right there but did you catch the common occurrence the phrase in Christ in Christ In Christ, or its equivalent, is used 12 times, verses 3 through 14. That ought to tell us something. It ought to tell us that the main idea of this section of verses is that Paul wants you and I to know who we are in Christ. In other words, who our new identity is. And he wants you to not have any confusion about your identity. He wants to know, wants you to know with absolute certainty who you are. If you profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are these things. It describes us. 
I heard one commentator said, uh, the phrase in Christ and related expressions are among the most important components of Paul's theology. Why would it be important to Paul that we as believers in Jesus Christ know our new identity? Well, because it's foundational. When we know who we are, and better yet, when we know whose we are, we play by a whole new set of rules. And we realize that our hearts are wicked and our feelings and our emotions are easily deceived. And so yet we follow the truth of who Jesus is. We surrender to him. We submit to his authority. We have a new identity and it translates into the way in which we live. So who are we in Christ? Let me sum it up for us. Paul says we are blessed, verse 3. We are chosen, verse 4. We are holy, also verse 4. We are adopted, verse 5. We've been shown grace, verse 6. We are forgiven, verse 7. We are given a purpose, verse 9. And we are united with Jesus, verse 10. That's who we are. Do you see why Paul is fired up? He wants to bless God with the longest run-on sentence ever. Why? Because of who he is in Christ. You and I should be led to do the exact same. Here's what I want to do. I want to show you in, in list format who you were before Christ, and compare it to who you are in Christ. And I want you to realize that this is Scripture speaking this over you, if you are indeed a follower of Jesus. Here we go. Before Christ, we were dead in sin. Oh, but in Christ, we're made alive. Before Christ, we were enslaved to sin. Oh, but in Christ, we're freed from sin's bondage. Before Christ, we were condemned, and in Christ, we're redeemed. Before Christ, we were guilty, but in Christ, we're forgiven. And before Christ, we were ungodly, but in Christ, he calls us holy. And before Christ, we were unrighteous, but in Christ, we are righteous. And before Christ, we were just a sinner, but in Christ, oh, we are a saint. Do you see the identity change? Beloved, we must believe this about ourselves. And when the enemy tries to confuse you and beat you down and keep you in your insecurity and sin, oh, you remind the devil whose you are. That is not who I am. Listen, the enemy is so good about throwing our past in our face, making us feel less than, and we operate in a world where we are completely insecure But listen, if you know whose you are in Christ, you can confidently stand before any of the lies of the enemy and say, not true. This is vitally important for us as believers and followers of Christ. Know whose you are. And 1 John 4.4 says, children, you are from God. In other words, that's who you are. And you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than than he who is in the world. Listen, you want an identity statement? Here's an identity statement. I was once dead in my trespasses and sin. Oh, but I've been made alive and adopted by God through Jesus Christ. That's who we were and now who we are. Having looked at those two things, now let's look at the third thing, who we will be. Paul, in this long run-on sentence, not only speaks of our identity change, but he also talks about our future. 
It's like knowing our future brings a sense of peace and comfort. Let's look at it together. Verses 11 through 14 of Ephesians 1. It says, in him, there's that phrase again, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Twice in this section, Paul uses the word inheritance. Romans 8.17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Who we will be are recipients who realize our inheritance. Well, what is our inheritance? It's glory. It's the presence of God forever dwelling with him where there is no sin, not even the hint of sin. In fact, sin is completely eradicated and we live in the perfection of glory. And the reason why I say it's, it's who we will be it's because Paul says that we've been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee until we acquire possession of it. So we haven't obtained this yet, but we have evidence that we will have it. How? Because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. When you and I profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, something miraculous happens. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in your soul. And that serves as a guarantee of what your future will be in Christ. One day, every knee will bow. One day, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. And one day, God will make a new heaven and a new earth, and we will dwell in the very presence of God forever. One day, that is our future. That is our inheritance. That's what we have to look forward to. And while we have yet to obtain that, Jesus is working towards that end. You say, well, what does all this mean for me? Knowing who we will be, how does that change what's happening in my life right now? Well, knowing who we will be brings meaning to the things that we experience here and now. In verse 11, Paul says, all things work according to the counsel of his will. That means this, everything God uses to advance his will. If God is working according to his will, then that means he will harness every single occurrence, good or bad, in my life to bring about his will. Now, I personally do not think that God is the author of that which is evil or that which causes pain in our life, but he certainly leverages it. This is why Paul can also say in Romans 8, 28, for we know that all things work to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Listen, the reason why knowing who you will be is so vitally important is in knowing that whatever it is that you face in this broken world, God is working it to achieve His will. And you can simply rest in Him. 
You could rest in Him. And in that case, there is security for the believer. Listen, child of God, if that's your identity, no matter what you're going through, God is working on it for His glory and for your good. And you can hold on to that. Paul's focal point of this passage, as we have seen, is our new identity in Christ. And the implication of this new identity speaks to us today. Like I mentioned earlier, the enemy whispers lies about our identity all the time. And listen, he's not even whispering anymore. You see evidence of the shouting of of the enemy's lies in our culture everywhere you look. And the effects are devastating. As a pastor, along with our staff, one of the most prevalent things that we counsel, you want to know what the biggest issue is that we counsel? doesn't matter what it is. It's an identity issue. People not understanding who they are in Christ. It's the root of all kinds of dysfunction. It's a root of dysfunction within their marriage because they don't know who they are in Christ. It's a dysfunction in their relationships because they don't know who they are in Christ. At the root of the issue, it's an identity problem. And as pastor, did you know that elementary age kids struggle with body image and self-identity and eating disorders? Teenagers struggle to find worth and self-esteem is at an all-time low. Adults have lost their identity in their jobs and their kids and even in their hobbies. So much so that they wake up one day and they say, who in the world am I? That which I found my identity in is now gone, and what do I do now? And listen, the antidote to all of these problems is knowing who you are in Christ. It's why Paul said, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Twelve times. He wants you to know who you are in Christ because it changes everything. Listen, when the world says that you're ugly and fat and not good enough, Jesus says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. When the world screams that you are worthless, in Christ you say, I have a great purpose. When the world says you're not lovable and you need to change everything about you, in Christ you say, I'm already loved and I don't have to earn it. When the enemy shouts that things are hopeless, in Christ you say, my future is secure. And listen, if you doubt that, there is a cross and an empty tomb that proves that that is the case. Know who you are in Christ because when you do, it changes everything. You're listening to Trinity Baptist Church's Hope for the Broken podcast. If you would like to learn more about this ministry, visit us online at trinitytx.org. That's trinitytx.org. Here's Pastor Chris to wrap up our time together. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you. Please feel free to give us a call at 903-572-1959 or email us at info at trinitytx.org. 
If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, you can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.